ADP has your back with ADP Marketplace, a digital HR storefront. Be a more trusted advisor to your clients by recommending apps to help streamline HR processes and free up time to focus on people. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, ADP Marketplace, later in the episode. So, I mean, so, so basically, President Trump's going to get his next paycheck because he works for the federal government. There won't be a Social Security taken out. Right. The 6.2% is not going to be taken out. Uh, but then it's going to get paid back, you know, next year. But I guess, you know, if Trump isn't president next year, uh, then he won't be paying back the Social Security. It'll be the the, the, well, the White House that owes it, right? Uh, this is the perfect. Yeah, how come nobody's presenting it that way, Blake? This is genius. You should tweet this. Like, like, like it summarizes it perfectly. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that until now. That's pretty funny, right? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClockShark. ClockShark is the leading GPS time tracking and scheduling system built for local construction and field service companies that want a simpler way to track time, run payroll, and understand job costs. With the capabilities of crew tracking, scheduling, job site geofencing, teams and project segmentation, automatic labor allocation, budgeting, and reporting, ClockShark has built a robust mobile time tracking system to handle the unique challenges that face your clients. With ClockShark, your clients can keep accurate records like overtime, paid time off, unpaid time, hours per job and task, as well as the crucial data needed for certified payroll. With the integrations ClockShark has, you'll be able to connect to one of many ADP payroll platforms through ADP Marketplace and process payroll in minutes with a click of a button. ClockShark's pricing starts at just $6 a month per employee. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash ClockShark. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-A-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. I recently had two Zoom calls with accountants that use BQE Core for their professional service clients like architects, engineers, consultants, and lawyers. One accountant called it the missing link for professional services. Another said that BQE Core is the only game in town for job profitability in the cloud. My biggest takeaway from the conversations was how you can 100% use BQE Core as your standalone accounting system or pair it up with either QuickBooks Online or Xero. Either way, you get to take advantage of all the advanced features of BQE Core like adjustment invoicing, budgets, labor cost, forecasting, contract analysis, and approval processes. Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners will receive three months of BQE Core for free with an annual subscription package purchased on or before September 30th, 2020. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash core. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-O-R-E. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And it is Sunday, September 13th after, what did we just have? Labor Day. <laughs> we had Labor Day. Yeah. And you, all your trash, like you, you have your trash out the wrong day and your recycling out the wrong day. Yes, that's right. Well, I wasn't here. I was in South Lake Tahoe doing a leadership retreat for Giraffe because we have raised $8.3 million this fall. And we haven't been able to see each other, you know, to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to grow this company? And uh, so it was critical that we get together. So we finally decided we have to do it. We're just going to, the six of us get in a room together. And so, yeah, I was traveling for the first time since the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. So that was interesting. I have to say the airports are set up very well to social distance because there's not a ton of air travel. So it's not like you're crammed together in the terminal. You can definitely social distance through security as well. Not at huge lines. I flew Southwest, which is keeping the middle seats empty on planes, which made me feel very comfortable. You know, I just sat near the window and kept my airflow going and uh, wore my mask and everybody was wearing masks. Like compliance on that was super, super high. I would say like 98% of the people I saw were wearing them properly over their nose and their mouth. So uh, I felt comfortable. I actually felt more comfortable in the airport and on the plane than in many restaurants that I've seen. So okay, that's because you're in non-compliant Phoenix area. <laughs> I'm starting to ditch to travel. I want to travel to New York City. I'd like to travel to Tel Aviv, uh, where Melio was founded. Yeah, you were uh, going. They were in the news this week. You've you've never been there to headquarters since you started, right? You, no, I was literally yeah. So I started at Melio, and I was five minutes from the airport in Tucson here. And um, the CEO called me on the cell phone, and he's like, "Don't come. They're locking everything down." And then two days later, we locked everything down in the states. But I literally have. You had your bags packed. Um, I like 
I still have clothes folded that I just took out my suitcase and put back on the shelf and like never put away properly. And, and actually, uh, I finally picked up my backpack because Starbucks, you're, you can go to Starbucks and work again. So I did that one day this oh, week. Wow. So like, but, but if I think about it, my backpack just sat there for eight months. Yeah. Or whatever this is now. What are we in eight months into this now? March, April, May, June, July, August, September. Yeah. Past six months, seven months for some parts of the country. Yeah. Cause and it kind of started right after. It's, it, it's the first week, second week of February. In right? LA, it, it started like first week of March was when people started to realize what was going to happen. They, 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 seriously. Yeah. So anyways, the reason I want to go is Melio was in the news this week. I don't know if you saw on uh, Tuesday morning. Melio announced their their Series B and their Series C rounds. And so how much so, money are you so rolling in dough now? Melio, I'm rolling. Yeah. So we got to hire a lot of bodies, right? Uh-huh. Like to, to, This is a big, a big job here. But um, they had a $48 million raise. And then... Uh, Eighty million dollar raise. Wow! And so for a total, with the like, I think the Series A raise, it's a total one hundred and forty four million has been raised. Is this so you, now? Were both announced at the same time because the first one wasn't previously announced, or did they both happen at the same time? Uh, both were not. Pre- the other one wasn't previously announced. Got it. So they the both announcements were at the same time on t- uh, Tuesday, um, and then in COVID, a lot of it is just about how to double down and grow more mm-hmm. um, during COVID times. Payments are uh, are we Melia, basically we had seven hundred percent growth, right? Um, okay. which, which makes sense because I've talked to a lot of accounts and bookkeepers that are like, they have small business clients, they can't use paper checks right. or yeah. they have, or the bookkeeper took the paper checks home, but they don't work in her printer or his printer. And then the business owner has to drive over there twice a week to sign the paper checks. Like it's just, there's a lot of things going against using paper checks right now. <laughs> and that's, and Melio solves that ultimately. And it's not just small businesses that feel that pain. I was just reading an article in CFO uh, talking about the future of finance in you know, mid-sized, large organizations. And one of the quotes was from Stephen Horowitz, the CFO at CareCentrics. And he said, quote, the only time finance staff had to go to the office was to scan physical mail and bills into their smartphones to process accounts payable. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's the only time. So you guys are doing good work. It's very, very, I mean, timely. And the fact that people have to take photos of the of the the bills, it reminds me of a feature and a request that I need to work on for Melio because we don't let people email the bills in yet. Oh, yes. I so. really want that. Yeah. So, I got some more remote stories. Like I mentioned, uh, finance teams are moving remotely with a lot of success. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal about how auditors are struggling to work remotely, which doesn't surprise me given the reliance on, on paper uh, for a lot of auditing and in-person interviews. But there's some good news. The AICPA issued a new audit evidence standard that allows for non-human evidence collection. And the PCAOB, which regulates public companies on that end, is also considering revising their audit evidence rule. So bringing some potential relief to teams that are working remotely on the audit and on the finance side. I got uh, a survey from Zapier on like the state of automation software and lots of cool data and uh, things in that to look at. TurboTax, the FTC is investigating now on the whole Intuit deceptive marketing stuff um, where Intuit employees are going to be called in to testify. That'll be interesting, like public testimony. Yeah, and Intuit handed over millions of pages of documents. It's almost like that overwhelm disclosure. Like, mm-hmm. All right, here, here's 500 million pages of emails you can go through. Right. <laughs> Build your case. Uh, well, uh, speaking of investigations, Intuit's not the only tech company under investigation. Cabbage is under investigation for its PPP loan program, which we've discussed. Really? Yes. They were very successful, but now that has attracted attention. And um, Rocket Loans and the contractor associated with Rocket Loans that helped them get all that work for the EIDL program. They're also under investigation. So, well, then why don't we why don't we jump into uh, people that are in, under investigation <laughs> as a category today? Because I have, uh, you know, I have talks about uh, PPP fraud. Mm-hmm. Apparently, fifty seven total people have been charged as of now. Only fifty seven. That sounds low. That was my thought as well. I saw just fifty seven. If they said there's been two billion dollars in fraud, which I think was some of the reports a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's the and estimate. Fifty seven right? yeah. charged. Like, how long is this going to they like? It's kind of like getting audited, right? By the IRS, the odds are on your side. Very like much. If you committed so. a PPP fraud, the chance of you getting caught is very low. Actually, it, it's really easy to commit PPP fraud, or it was. I guess because you can't do it anymore. But it was very easy because you just had to self-certify to the payroll, to the need, 
Uh, and it was up to the banks to do a little bit of due diligence on that, but not much because the law insulates them from having to like do a, an audit to have to actually verify this information. So people are talking about this is very similar to the liar loans of the 2008-2009 mortgage crisis where you had banks issuing mortgages without any documentation at all of um, people's income and, and stuff like that, right? So as far as Cabbage goes, uh, this is really interesting to me because we talked about how Cabbage got acquired by Amex back in August. Uh, they were one of the first companies to jump on PPP. And for our listeners who are not familiar with Cabbage, they are a digital lender to small businesses, connect your QuickBooks file, and Cabbage will tell you how much you can borrow. And then you can you know, borrow online. It's very streamlined, right? You don't have to go to a bank. So that was Cabbage's main business, was just making these relatively small loans to small businesses. And when coronavirus hit, the, that business went away. They shut that down and they pivoted very, very quickly to processing PPP loans. And by the end of August, they were number two for issuing PPP loans. They got very quickly up and running, um, pivot, like an amazing pivot. And that is what caught the attention of Amex, American Express, which agreed to acquire substantial parts of the business. And but didn't Amex not get the PPP part? Right. That's what was very confusing about the whole acquisition. So they are acquiring the technology platform, which makes a lot of sense. Because if the tech platform is so good that they were able to go from doing you know, micro loans to PPP loans that fast as a tech company. Because they have all the pipes. They right. have all the pipes built. Right. So Amex is buying that for like, I don't know, it's billions, right? It's a lot of money. It was, it was a good 800 million or something. Yeah. So... But here's the thing about this, um, you know, did Cabbage in rushing to process all those loans not do enough checking of the people who were going through their platform? Well, a joint investigation by the Miami Herald slash McClatchy DC and anti-corruption data collective flagged more than 75 companies that received loans of at least 150000 from the coronavirus small business relief program, but didn't appear to have existed before the spring or to have met other eligibility criteria for the program. Now, of those 75 companies, one in five got their loans from Cabbage. So that's quite a good chunk considering so, that so, so, Cabbage so, so, – hold on, They hold on identified here. 75 potential frauds. Yeah. And one out of every – Five. Yeah. Five of those 75 just coincidentally went through Cabbage. And Cabbage processed fewer than 1% of all PPP loans. So really, you would expect maybe one of those companies to be Cabbage given you know the total volume of loans. If if Cabbage processed one percent of PPP loans, then maybe you know one company on that list of seventy five would be a, a Cabbage company. But it was one in five of those companies, right? So twenty, you know, fifteen of the seventy five, right? So um, yeah, you know, that's that indicates maybe that something might not have been right there. So then, why is Cabbage under investigation? Then is it because they think Cabbage did something to enable this on purpose or to push loans through? Uh, prematurely or, you know, without due diligence, or is it just criminals found a whole, they figured out that they had the, they were the easiest to push loans through. So they attracted more criminals. Yeah. I, I'm not totally clear on that. I mean, there is some requirement on these lenders to do something to ensure that the loans are not fraudulent. I mean, I, it's not very much, but you know, like the question is like, were they just pushing through these without even checking the documentation at all? It feels like this is easier to – it's just easy to solve, right? Because that's the same thing with this article that I have, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which was in payments. And, you know, they have businesses that basically said they had dozens of employees in four different businesses, but they actually didn't have any employees at all, right? right. Zero employees. Right. But the thing is, you're the bank. You're giving the money. Like, the SBA doesn't give you the money. You don't, you don't, you don't get the money from the SBA first right. and then use that to put out loans, right? You're giving the loan of your money. And then you're going to the SBA and say, hey, I gave out this loan. Here's why it's a qualified loan. Please reimburse me. So, it really, is, is there even a crime committed here? Like, ultimately, the bank made a bad loan or Cabbage made a bad loan. They got to eat it. I don't know what's going to happen with this. Um, but it all, I think it all boils down to the forgiveness process. Is If forgiveness is rubber stamped, like you have said it's going to be, or you've predicted it's going to be, then none of this will ever matter. Because most of these loans will just get... Uh, forgiven. And if they were fraudulent, oh, well. 
So in the case of those businesses that like didn't have any payroll at all, and then they claimed to have all these employees, like what were they uploading as evidence of their payroll? That you had to include some evidence, right? Some documentation. Were the were the lending platforms even requiring it? So that's that's my question. Or maybe they were just uh, But you're just creating a PDF. Like I just printed a report from OnPay right. and just uploaded it. So somebody could have – it's probably not hard to, to figure out what the report looks like in something like ADP and just fake it and create a fake PDF and upload it. Yeah, I don't know. It's, we'll, we'll see, right? Um, uh, it's like uh, the the coffee guys. They were uploading those uh, – and the, the wire card guys, they were just creating fake bank statements. I've got and one more fraud story here that I mentioned, the EIDL program, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program which has itself been kind of a disaster because unlike the PPP program, EIDL loans did not get out very quickly. It has been plagued by delays and also plagued by pervasive fraudulent activity. Over 5,000 cases identified by the SBA Inspector General and an estimated $250 million in fraud so far. So lawmakers are drilling down on this one uh, relationship that the SBA has with a contractor that is helping with the EIDL program. So get this, the SBA awarded a $770 million contract, actually at least $770 million. We don't know the total amount. They awarded at least $770 million to a contractor called RER Solutions Inc. in uh, Virginia to process EIDL loans and grants to help get them up and running faster, moving those loans through faster. So they they got a $770 million contract. They only have 40 employees. And the last contract they got from the SBA was for $10 million in 2018. So they went from doing a $10 million contract to doing a $770 million contract with only 40 employees. And the whole point was to help the SBA accelerate EIDL. There was no competitive bidding on this. This was something the SBA just did very quickly. Now, RER, with only 40 employees, obviously could not help that much. So they subcontracted the bulk of the work to Rocket Loans. The parent company of Rocket Loans also owns Quicken Loans. So, you know, you've seen their ads everywhere, I'm sure. Now, Rocket Loans hasn't said how much it made as a subcontractor, but just think about this. You've got $770 million going to this 40-person company to process EIDL loans, and they just turn around and subcontract to Rocket Loans. How much are they skimming off of this, right? How much money is this little consulting agency making as a result of its political connection to the SBA? Why didn't the SBA just go and contract with Rocket Loans directly? So this is the kind of like skimming and grift and graft in the, you know, this is the swamp. Yeah, this is politics. Yeah, right. right? And like, just think about this. That's one contract. How much of this stimulus money is actually just being eaten up by fees to banks, fees to contractors, like like a lot of it could be not getting to the small businesses because of that. Yeah, and I, I think we're gonna you know we'll jump into Intuit's thing, but uh, to yeah. the, uh, I have two more articles that are fraudish related too. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, well, I'm curious to hear about Intuit. So, what's the right, we jump over to that one? Yeah. So, this is the whole Intuit TurboTax free file. ProPublica has covered it extensively. They exposed it. So they have now covering the fact that the FTC is investigating into it over these practices. And the investigation has been underway for more than a year. And Intuit produced a half a million pages of documents um, in response to the FTC's first civil investigative demands. So it's almost like a subpoena, mm-hmm. but essentially they're just starting to subpoena and, and get the records. So a, a million pages of documents. So the FTC is investigating now. Like, what were the investigations that were happening before? Was that Congress? Was that it was Congress. It was, and so that's what really kind of drove this, right? Um, there was demands by um, it was a bipartisan order, mm-hmm. right? There was uh, demands um, Elizabeth Warren, so she was one of the people driving this. Mm-hmm. They, they demanded this investigation, and so then it, it moved from a high level investigation to now they're getting into the weeds, right? Got it. And um, essentially, there was just fights about the company records, right, and the conduct of Intuit. And now what's happening is they're actually bringing in. So they're going to have a hearing that with at least eight different Intuit employees. And there's going to be, they're going to require at least five Intuit employees to testify over several days. Wow. So I'm going to have my TV on watching C-SPAN and I'm going to get to see Intuit getting grilled. <laughs> well, it doesn't Intuit. say if that's like an, a Congress type thing. Yeah. But they're, so, th- so this has crossed a whole new line from being very political grandstanding. Yeah. Oh, bad Intuit. 
they, they did this too. Like there's real legal things happening here. Right. Um, and then there's a couple outcomes they're suggesting that could happen. Like previous FTC investigations in the past have led to large cash settlements and refunds for customers. Um, some have agreements by companies just to stop the practices. And then they could also just conclude until it did nothing and just drop the whole thing. Right, right. So um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes next. So this is just taking another escalating turn. In the meantime, right, Intuit's, you know, out there claiming they filed more free returns than every any other software product on the market combined. Right. Right. So yeah. it, it maybe Intuit's not even successful at this of, of of getting people to upgrade and not use the free product. Um, it'll be interesting where this where this goes, but uh, it's it's escalating to that next level. Well, we're talking about politics. We could talk about the peril tax deferral, unless you got some more fraud story. I, I got two more fraud related type things. So the okay. IRS is now offering um, they they have a request for proposal for people to help crack uh, two different type of Bitcoin products, uh, Monero and Lightning. They're two different protocols because what's happening. Remember we talked about um, ransomware as a service. Mm-hmm. These people that are that are hacking and doing ransomware, they don't want Bitcoin anymore because people can, it's not private. And people, the, right. the government, the IRS can track it. So now basically they're looking for people, the IRS is looking for people to help crack these two other protocols that are super, super secure and private. Oh, so they're, they're uh, cryptocurrencies where you can't easily trace the wallets and who where the money's going? So, so it's interesting that the IRS, IRS wants to crack this because... If somebody's doing ransomware as a service, I don't think the IRS cares if it's legal or not legal. They just need to make sure taxes are being paid on it. Right. right? So if you if you have a ransomware as a service business, you got to pay your income taxes properly. Yeah. So, so this is one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency. Like often the analogy is uh, that Bitcoin is like digital cash, but it's not really because cash you can't track it very easily. Right. If I hand you a million dollars in cash, David, it's like very difficult for somebody to track that money back to me after you've spent it. But with Bitcoin, every single person in that transaction history has like a unique identifier. And so I, you can trace the movement of Bitcoin through all time back to, you know, where it, its inception. Um, and so it's, it's, more like, it's more like credit cards in that way um, than it is like cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 there's a trail, right? It, right. It, it, but, it's all connected down the, down the line. But what these other services do is that they obfuscate the trail so that it is more like digital cash. And that's really scary for the IRS and for all tax authorities because, you know, cash is a big problem, right, when it comes to collecting taxes. And uh, imagine if it was easy, you know, if we had digital cash, you didn't have to carry around in briefcases and smuggle across borders and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it'd be almost impossible to tax. Well, you know, it'd be great them. for small businesses, right? If there was some software that helped you detect online fraud. Oh, yeah. Right? So there is there, there there's there's software called NS8. It's sort of a Las Vegas based online fraud prevention and detection software maker for small businesses, right? Small to medium businesses, and also they had a bunch of abrupt uh, abrupt layoffs, and their CEO resigned. And it's turning out it's looking there's a Securities and Exchange Commission investigation. So the company that specializes in fraud prevention and detection basically has frauds happening at the company. <laughs> Like financial fraud going on there? Finan- yes, oh, yes. Oh, boy. And the quote from the CEO that just resigned um, in response to Forbes via LinkedIn, he said, I did not walk away with the company's money, end quote. So, where did it go? What, what's yeah, the scope they, of this fraud? I'm just... So, so they um, fairly... Uh, they're founded in t- uh, 2012 um, with 50 employees. They grew to over 200 in the last year. Mm-hmm. In June, they closed a Series A with Lightspeed Venture Partners for $123 million in June. So, that's what, mm-hmm. three months ago? And they're burning 4 to $6 million a month and they're going to run out. But there's... The, so, this has just happened very quickly. All of a sudden, they're laying people off. CEO resigned. The investigation has popped up. So, so it's a, a story that basically just broke. So, maybe we'll have more news on this next week. Got it. So, but I just find it very ironic that, you know, here's a company that specializes in fraud detection who has people working there committing possible fraud. Right. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ADP Marketplace. How can you be a more trusted advisor for your clients as they face new challenges? By recommending solutions from ADP Marketplace, ADP's digital HR storefront. With ADP Marketplace, clients can try, buy, and implement highly rated HR apps that can share data with ADP, with secure data integrations, it's easy to streamline HR processes and adapt to new business needs. 
Help your clients discover new ways to recruit and onboard employees, boost performance, offer unique financial wellness benefits, and much more. And with integrations for popular business software like Expensify, PayActive, Slack, and ClockShark, clients can add value to the tools they already use by simply and securely connecting them to ADP. Have clients in field service or construction? ClockShark can help them track time to quickly and accurately run payroll, all integrated with ADP. Visit ADP Marketplace at apps.adp.com or right from your Accountant Connect dashboard. Not set up with Accountant Connect? Sign up today. It's free. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash ADP. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash ADP. ADP as your back with ADP Marketplace. Well, let's talk about the payroll tax deferral. Uh, yeah, one of our of other possible frauds. No. <laughs> <laughs> one of our uh, previous top stories, as listeners will recall, the Trump administration was not able to reach a compromise with Congress to extend stimulus, still has not, uh, and so unilaterally declared a payroll tax deferral starting September 1st that would go through the end of the year, uh, and then the Amounts would, if not forgiven by Congress, then be collected in the first four months of 2021. Now, there was a lot of discussion uh, as to whether or not companies would actually participate in this program because the IRS said that employers are on the hook for the payroll tax that they aren't able to collect from employees who leave before January or sometime in between. If there's any issues, it's on the employer. And And ultimately, it's optional. As an employer, it's optional. It's optional as an employer, yeah. We were saying on the show, like at least I was saying, I don't think anybody's going to do this because it's stupid, right? I would not do it as an employer. This is like a risk to me. It's it's extra headache work. And it doesn't really, in the end, help my employees because they're going to end up paying the same amount. It's just shifting uh, the burden and could even make it harder for them to manage their cash flow because now suddenly their paychecks will be smaller in 2021. So that's what happened. No major private employer has stepped forward with plans to forego withholding. Costco said they're not going to do it. UPS saying no. FedEx, no. Walmart, Macy's, Procter & Gamble have said no comment. The only large employer that is proceeding with its um, workers is the federal government because <laughs> the administration can make that happen. And so, uh, ironically, the, the federal government was late getting started the withholding didn't start on September 1st because the regulations or the guidance just came out on the day before. So they are starting the withholding in mid-September. So I'm going to guess uh, this week's paychecks probably will have. So, I mean, so, so basically, President Trump's going to get his next paycheck because he works for the federal government. There won't be a Social Security taken out. Right. The 6.2% is not going to be taken out. Uh, but then it's going to get paid back you know, next year. But I guess you know, if Trump isn't president... Next year, uh, then he won't be paying back the Social Security. It'll be the the the, well, the White House that owes it, right? <laughs> uh, this is the perfect. Yeah, how come nobody's presenting it that way, Mike? This is genius. You should tweet this. Like, like, like it summarizes it perfectly. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that until now. That's pretty funny, right? So, speaking of jobs, August was a pretty decent month for jobs. Employers added 1.4 million jobs in August, but we subtracted 1,600 accounting jobs. This doesn't surprise me though, because there's kind of a lag in the accounting world where, you know, the economy takes a hit and like a lot of these engagements, a lot of this work that we're doing, like it has to get finished before firms and businesses like do any layoffs in the accounting and finance teams, right? We're sort of insulated in that way. And then the job losses are never as bad as they are in the overall economy, just because it's not like you can stop doing accounting and tax and you know, finance and stuff. Somebody has to count up the beans to figure out who to lay off, right? right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So pretty much, you know, a wash for accounting in August, um, if you think about it in the big scheme of things. The unemployment rate fell to 8.4% from 10.2% in July. But before you take this as great news, the economy's recovering, you know, we're all, we're all, you know, this is, this is the bottom. And now we're going to the top. The IRS has projections that it has to do to estimate tax collections in future years. Uh, And they have released information saying they are projecting lower levels of employment in the US that will persist for years as a result of the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. The IRS is forecasting that there will be about 229 million employee classified jobs in 2021. That is 37 million fewer than it had estimated last year. 
and that's that's an estimate of the number of W2s, so it doesn't totally fit, you know, the number of jobs, but it's a pretty good approximation of that. So they are also estimating, and this is where it gets kind of scary, the lower rates of W-2 filings are going to persist through at least 2027, with about 15.9 million fewer forms filed that year compared with prior estimates. So we're in 2020, and they're projecting forward to 2027. And like, although we're you know, 37 million fewer W-2s next year, we're not going to get all those 37 million back even in six years. It might be like, half or 60% or something like that. So yeah, it's going to be a long recovery. Um, and, and I don't see this as being like politically motivated in that right, this is the IRS uh, doing projections for its own purposes. It's not, you know, typically like <laughs> um, politically motivated here. So, you know, we, we all hope that this is a quick recovery, but I, I would temper that expectation. And, and along with, you know, the, I, I mean, I've heard stuff from experts saying like, even if we have a vaccine this year, then it's going to take like a year to roll it out and for things to go back to normal. Like 2021, not necessarily going to be normal again. And I know you you don't like hearing that, David, because you really want to get back to in-person events and I do too. It's going to be slow. Well, slow. Oh, I mean, slow. football starts today. So That's I, good. I think there's, you know, we're slowly getting back in there. Um, I have two small app news and then I just have one. Do definitely talk about that survey. What else do you kind of have on your plate? Let's see here. I have an AI story. That is really the one thing I want to talk about because it's super cool. So why don't you hit hit your stuff and we'll finish out with uh, AI. And then I think we got some listener, uh, I've got a listener voicemail and some, uh, maybe a review or two. Yeah, we got some four reviews. It's amazing. So let me uh, yeah, knock out some some quick small app news. So Sage and uh, Revolut, remember we talked about uh, Revolut, they are that... Uh, Neobank, new bank in Europe, mm-hmm. and they're now coming to the States. And I think they, they, I saw this week they've launched in Japan now, but they also have their business, Revolut business customers, right? So they rolled that out. So they had a press release with Sage that they're um, reading the press release. The summary is it's bank feeds, right? Um, you can, Revolut's going to be basically be integrated with Sage and come down to a bank feed. So, which I think, uh, I, actually, I don't think these announcements when a bank announces they're integrated and they just have a bank feed is really news. But I feel like what's news about this is usually these neobanks get kind of neglected or uh, these newer um, uh, a credit card product like a, a Brex or a Divi don't get bank feeds into QuickBooks and that makes them harder to use those products, right? These newer banks, these newer products that are out there. Right. And so the fact that Revolut is now getting into quote unquote into Sage through a private bank feed is a big deal. It speaks well for these smaller banks, like they're getting noticed, right? That from a priority standpoint, it was very easy, I think, for a company like Intuit to be like, we'll just take care of the Sages and the American Expresses of the world and all these big companies. And they kind of ignored these newer banks. And so obviously there's enough, these, these new banks now are getting used by enough small businesses where the accounting software package have to integrate them properly into the bank feeds. Well, that's great because like, yeah, without that bank feed, you know, you can't support clients on those neobanks. I mean, it's like, remember the uh, the new Apple credit card? Oh yeah, the Quicken integration we talked about. Yeah, but they still, I still don't think there's like a QuickBooks integration, right? So if you've got customers using that, it's got to be a disaster. Like I wouldn't want to support that. Yeah, so, it's, so cool. that's going to be tough. And then uh, we talked about this company Deal before, D-E-L. So they took a Series B investment of thirty million dollars. So their their software basically they they are global payroll. So the theory is it's one software package. So you can hire your employees anywhere in the globe, and you have one package to do staff, contractors, compliance, payroll, all in one package. Now I don't know like I don't know how they're building this. I don't know how they're able to keep track of all the localized compliance and automating the payments through this, but. They they're going for it, and so they just you know, took another another round to keep pushing the, uh, down this path. Because I've seen companies like this before, mm-hmm. um, and this is the same. I mean, and Zero's probably tried to deal with it. This uh, Intuit's tried to deal with it, right? Where this is why you have QuickBooks payroll here in the states. They partner with WagePoint, and QuickBooks does in Canada. Yeah, um, I forgot who the partner was in the UK, um, and then in Australia, it's KeyPay. KeyPay Intuit. And then same thing with Zero, right? Zero here in the states partners with Gusto, right? And Zero tried to build their own payroll here in the states and didn't, wasn't successful at it. I even think Intuit purchased a global payroll provider company 
five years ago and just nothing ever seemed to happen from that. So I think this is a very, very, very tough thing to solve, but these guys, it looks like these guys are just only trying to do this. Like that, they're not like, Hey, we're going to build payroll for one country and then try to figure out a second country. And there's not many people that have done successfully. I know wage point has, is able to do us and Canada. And that's one of the few exceptions. Well, this is really interesting to hear. I'd be curious to know like what their market target is. Like, is it mid-sized businesses, large businesses? Because like you said, doing this is insanely difficult. Uh, but if they can, they could own this category of global payroll. Really cool. Yeah. And it doesn't really say what size businesses they're going for. It's just they're, they're, yeah. they're kind of... And then this is that startup, like, <laughs> loosey-goosey, very, like, inspirational. Like, we want to just help people, like, hire people everywhere. You can right. have a global workforce. And, right, right. You know, it's just so that you can get the best talent wherever they are. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Uh, well... I've got an app story. It's not specifically accounting. It's artificial intelligence. And you know I am a skeptic of artificial intelligence in the accounting profession. I think it's been overblown for years. But I saw something this last few weeks that blew my mind. And I think it really will make a humongous difference. The new technology is called GPT-3. GPT-3 is what you should search for if you want to find out about this on uh, Google. And it's created by OpenAI, an artificial intelligence research lab based in SF. It is a machine learning, uh, natural language processing, artificial intelligence. So, And it can do some really, really interesting things with that. So for instance, somebody built on Twitter, there's a video by at its Yash Danny, who built a bot plugging into this AI that lets people with no accounting knowledge generate financial statements. So, so and, and what it really does that. So he, he set up a balance sheet template in a Google sheet with assets, current assets, you know, non-current assets, liabilities, owners, equities. He laid out all the sections uh, and the different accounts. And then in his Python script that's connected to GPT-3, he types in transactions such as I put $20,000 in cash into the business. And then you can see on the other side of the screen, the um, cash like amount getting added onto the balance sheet into current assets in the cash line. And then he types, I prepaid $900 for the rent for the next three months. And the AI puts the $900 in the right spot on the balance so, sheet. So now, uh, is this really AI or is this, because this is the same kind of things I saw built at the hackathons on QuickBooks that people would build with uh, Amazon Alexa or uh, yeah. Google uh, voice thing where they basically have to program all those phrases in. And so yeah. is this one of those like, you, it's like Microsoft DOS. You got to type it or say it the right way or it's not getting on that balance sheet. No, that's what's ma- miraculous about this. So he, so GPT-3 is a general AI. Nobody programmed these financial statement phrases into it. What, what it does is it goes into its database and then it parses that sentence and tries to figure out what you want it to do. And it does it. So it, it can actually, like this is the sort of AI that where it could really look at a a bank statement line and know how to categorize it in the GL. And we have seen some companies doing that in our space. So, so it has billions of pieces of data and some of that data that it has refers to how to properly track an owner's investment in the business. And then it's extrapolating that out into a journal entry and sticking it into that Google sheet basically. Yeah. And it does it by, um, uh, best fit. So it doesn't actually understand what you want to do. It just looks through its, you know, massive database of information and tries to figure out, well, of all the accounts that are in this spreadsheet, when he says that I put $20,000 into the business, what does that most likely mean? And based on like all of the data it has, it says, oh, it must be cash because that's what other people do. That's what has been done in the past. Uh, so this is actually not the most common um, use case for this AI. The, the stuff that you actually see that's really cool is... Um, uh, somebody wrote an email plugin for Gmail where you write a, a bullet list of stuff you want it to say, and then it goes and takes those bullet points and turns it into a full email in paragraphs in, in prose. So it's like having a ghostwriter. Yes. And it's able to do that very well because uh, it can look at like all the emails you've ever written and then take that those bullet point, that list of bullets and get that information into text that looks, you know, and, and sounds like you based on what you've done in the past. So 
that actually is a really cool application for this. And I, I hope somebody like really writes that. Or I hope Google uses that because how great would it be if you could just write a bullet point of things that you want your email to say, and then it goes and it adds in the, the nice greeting, like, Hey, how are you doing today? Just wanted to let you know that blah, blah, blah. And then it, you know, puts all that in there. Right. Or you could just be a better service to the person you're emailing and just send them the bullet list. <laughs> like, get rid of, like the, that's the whole point of this. Like just send them the bullets. The, the, don't send them all the extra text. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> Actually, you know what I want? I want AI that strips all the other shit out of somebody's email and just gives me the points. So you could do, you could do it with that, that you could do that with this probably. That would be useful. Yeah. So it's that would be reverse, really useful. Though, right. Yeah. Like I get an email and there's like three sentences and it's the only three I need to read and all the other crap is gone. Yeah, that would be, actually the whole internet should act like that. Like, like there should be some browser plugin that just strips off everything. So, so I, I don't know if I've done a great job explaining what this thing does. I think seeing the examples is really cool. So, you know, check out our show notes. But if the link isn't in there yet, when you listen, go just search GPT three beta and see what people are doing with it because it is amazing and super cool and powerful. And I think this will have a big impact on accounting and finance, like especially when it comes to uh, writing like executive summary reports of what happened in the financial statements. Right? There's apps that do that now, but they're kind of limited because they had to be pre-programmed by the programmers to, you know, to like always say our current ratio is this and, you know, the cash in the bank is this. And, you know, that, that may not be actually what's the most interesting. So, yeah. So speaking of this AI, you'd use it as a tool, right? To automate your work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Zapier released their um, state of automation at work survey. So there's some cool data in this. So start out at a very high level. Now, two thirds of knowledge workers currently use automation software at work. And another um, 18% intend to use it in the future. It's not, it's not replacing us so much as supercharging what we can do. Yeah. And there's tons of stats on this, um, but they basically, these are employees, right? So these are people that are knowledge workers, right? They're saying that automation software improves the way I work. 38% people agree with that. Mm -hmm. Oh, how many people? What percent? 38%. Only 38%? Only 38%. Oh. Um, Automation software helps me be more organized at work. 40% people agree with that statement. 43% uh, it helps me complete tasks faster. Almost everybody in the survey, 96%, so they, they get a benefit from it of some type. Some of the highlights on that is that it reduces the number of errors, 38%. Um, they say they get more done, 37%. Um, it makes me better at my job overall, 36%, which I think that's a really, really interesting one because mm-hmm. I think that gets lost in the shuffle, right? When you, you know, if, if you're automating some of your work, Blake, in theory, it's not because you can go to the bar and drink, you're doing that because you're trying to accomplish bigger company goals. And that's a really big one that helps you uh, more overall. Um, Saving time, that kind of comes in here, saving money, doing things I value or enjoy more. Another one that really caught my eye is automation software prevents work from falling through the cracks. And that's where I think I find a lot of benefit of it. You know, like um, I'm using it for some Lead capture. I did a webinar with QBO chat. You know, if somebody watches that webinar, it automatically puts the email address into a Google Sheet. And I don't know, I'll forget to go get them and move them over to our lead sheet, right? But it, I just have it automated and it just goes from the Google Sheet Kathy Iconis made with QBO chat and gets it over into the Google Sheet I needed in. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like the, the confidence that you can have with automation versus having to, you know, run the business from your email inbox and try to remember to do everything is super powerful. And then, so there was a survey about, and, the, and you can take a guess on this. So what stops people from using automation? I, what do you think the, one of the reasons are? I mean, lack of like knowledge of how to set it up, maybe, you know, fear that f- some sort of fear of it. Yeah. I think there's little of that. Um, one's about 17% of the people say that, you know, their workplace isn't tech savvy. 23% didn't even know it was an option. Lack of knowledge there, yeah. Lack of knowledge. Um, And then some aren't sure how it could be useful to the job they're doing right now. So, like, they're almost, like, mentally blocked. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure, but that's just for other guys in the other department. Right. right? They're not seeing how it can be specific to them. Um, And then you're getting, yeah, like you said, some people are afraid of using it. They'll think it'll change their role or their responsibilities. And then there's the straight out, plain, straight up, I am afraid of using automation software, 4%. (laughs) It's not even like I'm afraid to learn it. I'm just like, I'm afraid of it. But so, so it was a good survey. This is about 1,800 US employed adults, ages 18 and older. Of those 
1,100, 900 were knowledge workers, just specifically sitting at a computer all day. That was their job. Interesting. Well, hey, in the short amount of time we got left, I yeah. want to make sure that we um, hear the voicemail that we got. We got another voicemail, and then we got, got one reviews. review, and then we'll, we'll take it out. So here we go. Hey, uh, my name is Mary, and I'm calling from the Bay Area in California, and um, I'm just starting a practice, and I love your show. Um, it, I've just discovered it. It's full of extremely useful information. I follow it every week, and I've gone backwards, so um, thanks so much for doing it, and um, I'm sorry I'm a little late to the conversation about value pricing. Uh, I, I appreciate the idea of the consumer surplus. You know, some people are willing to pay more than others, so why leave that extra money on the table? But I'm curious to know the extent to which that perpetuates certain groups paying more than others. You know, for example, people who don't feel as comfortable negotiating or people who aren't as clear about their options. Like in salaries, you know, would women and people of color get the short end of the stick? Um, of course, you can say that the market would take care of that with competition, but in my experience, humans are just way more complicated than that. So this is more of a question than a stake in the ground. I just wanted to add that to the conversation. And again, I love your show, and I'll be listening every week. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for listening. And actually, that's a great insight. And it's something I don't think about enough, I don't think, is how value pricing discriminates in a negative way. I mean, we even use that word discriminate, right? Because that's what you do when you value price. You're giving the a different price for the same service to uh, different customers. And we have to be careful when we do that, that we don't, we don't do it in a bad way or a wrong way or an unethical way. I, I, because it's, it's even illegal in some circumstances, right? Yes. Like, uh, I mean, charging for rent and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. So I don't have the, an- I don't know if I have the answer for that. I think it's important to have, I guess it would be important to have uh, measures in place to make sure that we don't discriminate unfairly, right? Based on race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, all of the the whole list, right? It's an unintended consequence that maybe people aren't thinking about that could take place. And it could be one of those things where it takes place over time and we won't know until years down the road and like, oh God, maybe this value billing thing. Maybe Ron Baker is completely wrong. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> well, like 30 years from now, we discover like it was the worst piece of advice to ever come out of the accounting industry. Th- um, this is why I'm a fan of making like most of the services, especially the entry-level services that your firm offers, fixed fees. Because then it's fair to everybody who comes to the firm. It's the same. And you know you can have tiers of that, of course. But it's fair because of that. And also, like the people looking at your site or when you present these fixed fees, you can say, this is our fee that everybody pays at this range of their business. And like me as a customer, I like that. It doesn't mean you necessarily put it on your website, but it, it the way you present it can be like that. So that fixed fees are a way to you know avoid um, the value pricing danger of, of discriminating you know, improperly. And, and, you know, you could have lots of different types of fixed fees for different sizes of business, right? And the whole idea is to, if you want to standardize your practice, is to not have to do value pricing all that much because it's time consuming and tedious. Like if you're not doing big engagements where, you know, it's it's very heavy time investment, then you really don't need it. If you ask me, you don't need it that much. So, um, so you do have four reviews. You want to just knock those out here? Wow. Four. That's awesome. Yeah, let's do it. I'll jump into the first one here. This is uh, Kate Josephine Johnson. So this review is on Podchaser. It's five stars. The Cloud Accounting Podcast has been an absolutely invaluable asset to me as I built my new bookkeeping business over the last couple of years. I don't have a ton of time to weed through the relevant industry news. I can trust David and Blake to give me the most important news I need to know. I also appreciate how the podcast continues to help me build my professional confidence. I am an entrepreneur and bookkeeper for the first time in my life after having been out of the workforce for many years. It is as if the Cloud Accounting Podcast helped me relearn the language of business and quickly get me brought up to speed with new bookkeeping industry I find myself in. I highly recommend this product and I'm always recommending it, especially for anyone who is new in the bookkeeping and accounting world. You'll learn the language of the industry very quickly. You will be a better advisor to your clients. You will learn information that can help you directly apply to be successful in your own business. I listen to every episode. Kate Josephine Johnson of Heritage Business Solutions and the Bookkeeping Side Hustle. Thank you, Kate. It's amazing. Thanks so much, Kate. Great to hear. Our second review comes from Omalara. I have been listening to Dave and Blake 
or Blake and Dave, for about a year now. Their podcast is super relevant for accountants, especially those in public accounting. When I set out to start listening to various accounting podcasts, I wasn't expecting much. I thought, here we go. This is going to be boring AF. Quite the contrary, <laughs> even though Blake and Dave are talking about the most boring subject in the history of mankind, they keep it light and interesting. They always share what is going on in their personal lives, and I love their political commentary. Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> when I tell people I listen to accounting podcasts, they always think it's because I am so passionate about accounting. Smiley face. In reality, it's because I found a podcast that isn't so boring, I want to jump off a cliff. Thanks, Blake and Dave. That's, that might be our funniest review we've ever gotten. <laughs> Got another one here. So this one's a five-star review on iTunes from Josh Christ. Christ. Uh, whether you're well-established or as someone innovating in the accounting space or just getting started as a catalyst for change, this is a must-listen podcast for you. David and Blake do an incredible job leading conversations that cover a huge breadth of topics related to the ins and outs of navigating an ever-changing accounting industry as leaders who've actually experienced success themselves. Highly recommend listening and subscribing. And our final review comes from SissyDog73. This is a great podcast. It's light on the chit chat, which I appreciate and full of useful accounting information and developments. This is one of my weekly must listen podcasts. Five stars on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, everybody. All of you, Josh, Sissy Dog, Omolara, Kate, for writing those reviews. They are so helpful. And to all of our listeners, if you want to go write a review, we would very much appreciate it. It really helps us uh, get visible with all the accountants and bookkeepers out there who are looking for podcasts. David, where can people go if they want to help us out? So you can go to Podchaser to leave a review. That's podchaser.com. Put a review on Apple Podcast. That's great. Uh, you could call and leave us a voicemail. It's uh, Phone number is 202-695-1040. That is 202-695-1040. It's a Google voice number. Go straight to voicemail. You've got a three-minute limit. Let us know what you think. And if you want to reach me online, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. How about you, David? I'm on Twitter as well. I'm at David Leary. And you can also get a hold of me on LinkedIn. Just make sure you say you listen to the podcast so we know you're not a robot. Yeah. Say you're not a bot. That makes it easy for me to accept your invite. Until next time, David, great chatting with you. As always, stay safe, stay sane. I'll see you here next week. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Still sending spreadsheets of unclassified expenses to clients? With Client Hub, automate this process and get client answers instantly. Client Hub is a client communication platform that helps you consolidate client communication, securely share files, and instantly get answers and much, much more. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app and enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. Client Hub, frictionless client communication. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info, and be sure to check out our special stimulus pricing of four episodes for just $100.